0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. The three your three main regular co-hosts are all back in action together. So it's an exciting episode. This is Emily Fields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact.
1: And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact.
2: And I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact.
0: So I've missed you guys.
1: I know. It's been a while. Well, Andrew and I just chatted on the last episode. So I feel like I'm missing you a ton because I haven't seen you in ages.
0: I know. And it's been a few episodes. Um, So, Andrew and I actually got to see each other this week. And part of that, we were recording for the podcast. So I'll talk about that for a minute. So, I think, Andrew, rather than talking about where you've been, we were going to chat a little bit about where you're going.
2: Yeah, I am uh, leaving in just a few minutes after we finish this conversation for Philadelphia for the 25th anniversary conference of the Netter Center, the community engagement center at University of Pennsylvania, led by, I think it's fair to say, the legendary Ira Harkavy. If you don't know Ira's work, Google him. He's been a, a huge influence on community engagement in higher education, the anchor institutions movement. He's built international partnerships and consortia and so it should be a great gathering and for me a return to the region i worked in for quite a while uh in the delaware valley a lot of the great people from philadelphia and new jersey and delaware that i worked with so looking forward to that a great deal and then as soon as i get back we have about 200 newman civic fellows from around the country uh, descending upon boston to meet at the edward m kennedy institute for the u.s senate should be a great couple of days and it happens to coincide with a TEDx event at the JFK Library, which is part of the celebrations of the 100th anniversary of John Kennedy's birth. And I will have my first crack at a TEDx talk as part of that event. So I'm really looking forward to that. So a, a packed week, but I'm really excited about it.
0: What are you TEDxing about?
2: I'm TEDxing about a way of thinking about our current predicament and a sort of way out of our, the, the fighting that we're all doing with each other that doesn't seem to be leading toward actual solutions to the huge policy challenges that we face. Uh, so yeah, kind of a reflection on uh, things I've learned in my own life in ways that I, I feel like we can kind of develop some habits for changing the dynamics. So uh, it'll be Post it online at some point. I will share information about that. And they they do like the TEDx people do fancy editing of the video and then they post it. So I don't know how all that works. But at some point it'll be out there in the world. And if people want to spend a few minutes, uh, they are certainly welcome to do so.
1: Well, you know what happens with TEDx talks? Those are shared millions of times all around the world. So at some point you will be the voice for this and we'll have to get your autograph. So I'm just giving the Compact Nation folks some uh, heads up that they might want to want to get you now on the ground level to get your autograph because it might be worth some money later, right?
2: Well, I think the uh, people who have those, you know, travel reimbursement um, approvals with my signature on it, that, that's already <laughs> right there.
1: Oh, wow. Perfect.
0: Awesome. Uh, JR, what's going on in Indiana?
1: Well, we are gearing up for uh, Thanksgiving break, actually. So we are in the point of winding down what we're doing. Uh, We just came off of Pinned to paper, which is our annual writing retreat that we work with other state compacts to put on. We were just in Rochester, New York, hosting with Laurie at New York Campus Compact and the folks at NAS College To put that on and we brought together journal editors who oversee community engagement journals and higher education to the table to help coach folks who are working on manuscripts, uh, help guide them in that process and help them find homes for their publications. So it was a successful event once again and and we're always glad to host that and then we're always glad uh, when it's over because it does take quite a bit of work and we're gearing up for Thanksgiving break for a small rest before we come back full force right after the following week.
0: Uh, Yeah, we had three faculty from Iowa, our faculty fellows at pen to paper. I haven't debriefed with them yet, but I've heard good things so far.
1: That's what we like to hear. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: good. Awesome. Yeah, we're just kind of winding down from our own student conference as well. So excited to um, have the Newman Civic Fellows Conference. And then we had the Iowa Civic Action Academy uh, two weeks ago, brought together students from across the state to consider different ways of making social change. And it was awesome. So just a great opportunity to see students in action and help them consider different ideas, including getting involved in local government and local politics, which many had not. And we got some really great um, local elected officials there to talk about the case for that. That's awesome. So, yeah, Andrew, you and I were together earlier this week for a really exciting event on Monday, the launch of Campus Compact for the Great Plains. So can you talk a little bit about what that is?
2: Absolutely. Uh, We have a new compact in the Great Plains region. It uh, comprises right now South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. Uh, Institutions from across those three states. Uh, We have a new director. Mary Ryan, who we were very excited to be able to bring into our network. She's an experienced uh, senior leader in academic and student affairs with a lot of experience uh, at University of Kansas. She's an Omaha native, and this new compact is being hosted at University of Nebraska Omaha in their fabulous civic engagement center, which is where we were able to hold this launch event. Uh, it is a model. Anybody who hasn't been out there, it's a reason to go to Omaha to check out that facility and just see they, they have space for community partners, space for their own uh, community engagement professionals, student organizations. It's a really fantastic place. We brought together folks from across the street, three states to really begin a conversation about what uh, what the region needs from its higher education institutions and how the institutions can collaborate through the compact to uh, to move forward on the kinds of uh civic development and engagement of institutions in the challenges that the region is facing. So I, I had a great time. What did you think, Emily?
0: Oh yeah, it was a great event. Um, your remarks were really interesting and then there were different sessions. Um, Stephanie Schooley from Camp, Campus Compact for the Mountain West and I led a session. We were kind of talking about how you uh, make the case for The civic mission or the public good of higher education right now and why it's important to do so and some ideas for really maximizing the impact of what you're trying to do and we had a great conversation with people around that um and then one of the other presenters was our podcast guest for today so since we were together in person andrew and i got to interview Uh, Timothy Schaefer, who is um, an assistant professor in the Department of uh, Communication Studies at Kansas State University. He has done a lot of work around deliberative pedagogy, deliberative democracy, deliberative dialogue, and in fact, um, just came out with a new book that I have here in front of me on deliberative pedagogy that he talks about a little bit in the podcast, and we kind of got into... um, Public deliberation, the importance of that, how we can help students get new skills, how we can get new skills ourselves. And I thought it was really interesting and timely. So let's go right to that interview. All right, Tim Schaefer, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks a lot. It's great to have you. We're going to dive right into some of the work you've done with maybe just helping people a little bit better understand the landscape of dialogue, deliberative dialogue. So just tell us a little bit about what some of those things mean to you. What is dialogue?
3: What is dialogue? That's a great question because there are a lot of words that sound similar. So dialogue, deliberation, conversation, discussion, all these things can uh, sometimes be used interchangeably. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a kind of general sense, that's fine. Um, when I think about the work that I do, I usually frame it uh, through this lens of deliberative dialogue, um, deliberation being kind of the fundamental piece. And at the heart of that is the the, the root of the word that we use for pound, right, to weigh. Uh, um, and it's fundamentally about this idea of people engaging in discussion with one another, kind of weighing tensions and trade-offs of issues, of problems, and then figuring out how to make um, some progress uh, takes some action on something. So at the root of it really is um, people convening, coming together to talk through shared kind of public concerns um, and then figuring out what to do about that. You know, whether it's in an immediate kind of way, taking some action or if it's sometimes and more often than not, uh, more of a sustained kind of process that it takes a while to build up to a point of saying, yeah, we understand what's going on and, and, and being able to do something from that. So I, you know what, my background and training really is rooted in a lot of that kind of discussion. So emerging from democratic theory, kind of democratic practices, but fundamentally rooted in the idea that, that uh, you know, thinking of politics as being citizen centered, uh, kind of on the ground, so to speak, there are roles for professionals and institutions, uh, and for elected officials, but at the heart of it, democracy is something that's lived and experienced by uh, by members of a community, however that's defined.
0: So it's somewhat big and lofty. It is. What yeah. does it really mean if I'm teaching a class? Your book is Deliberative Pedagogy. What yeah. is that?
3: So what does that mean? So, yeah, uh, the title Deliberative Pedagogy, two words that make it really hard to give an elevator speech to somebody who doesn't right. know what these things are. Um, But at the root of it, the deliberative piece is uh, building off what I just was saying, you know, the idea of creating an environment where people can um, kind of name and frame issues. And we can talk about that a little bit more. But how do you articulate what the problems are that you're trying to address? And so um, and then the, the pedagogical piece, or if you want to get more technical about it, might be a little bit of androgry. Uh, which is kind of the, the adult version of, of education pedagogy technically is for, for kids. Um, andragogy was just one step too far of like, you know, pedagogy is obscure enough. We we don't need to take it any farther. Yeah.
0: I now. don't know if andragogy is yeah. going to get your book flying. On no, the no.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We, we need the help anyway. Uh, but, um. No, but, but at the root of it is how do you bring these kind of democratic practices, which are fundamentally rooted in kind of community life in a general way, how do you bring that into kind of educational spaces? So a lot of that happens in classrooms, um, but also in co-curricular settings. And for us, the the, the project emerged out of people uh, for a number of years who were working in both classroom as well as community environments. And so we, we talk about kind of the pedagogical approach being rooted in education writ large. So it it doesn't have to be uh, Tuesday, Thursday at eleven thirty. Right, it can happen in the after-school program, in the community center, those types of things. But it, it, at the heart of it, really, is this idea of how do you create an environment where people are co-creating uh, knowledge and experience? You know, have the ability to shape what's going on. We we talk um, uh, about the the role of space making. You know, how important it is to um, help cultivate an environment where. Um, people see themselves as having a degree, degree of agency and some efficacy around mm-hmm. uh, the problems that are are being more concrete. Okay,
0: what yeah. are kind of the streams of of dialogue?
3: Like what is what is it what- that there are lots of ways going back to the beginning of the conversation? There are a lot of words that sound quite similar, mm-hmm. uh, but there are distinct uh, benefits to um, say having an exploratory conversation using a particular type of, of approach. Um, for example, on our our campus at Kansas State University, in a few weeks we'll have students organizing a uh, discussion. of uh, Kansas State we use the language of family all the time, right? A lot of institutions will t- talk about being a community. At Kansas State it's really this family kind of language. Um, but we've had a, a number of incidents recently that have affected um, uh, certain uh, segments of the university community and beyond. Uh, and everybody's kind of been experiencing. And so we're going to have a conversation about what does it mean to be part of this family? And to do so, we we felt like we're not re- trying to resolve an issue, but we're trying to open up a conversation. So for that reason, we're using a, a model that falls into that that kind of area of explore, explorative kind of discussion. So World Cafe is uh, is one model of, of kind of um, this democratic talk, if you want to think of it that way. And so in that environment, that's what's really the most appropriate. Mm-hmm. In situations when if there have been kind of sustained partnerships and things of that sort, you might be moving to uh, one of the, the other quadrants of collective action, right? That it's going to lend itself to a different model, something like study circles, an ongoing kind of conversation. Sustained dialogue is another one that has uh, some uh, presence on college campuses that's born out of but um, you know largely tensions between groups of, of students and how do you get people to, to convene to come together to be able to actually get to know one another at a human level uh, especially if there's been some kind of deep division so on a lot of campuses that has been around uh, racial um, identity issues um, and and group dialogue is, is very similar in that way but how do you bring these populations together to get to know one another as people, And then to work through some of the challenges that have been going on. And so but that's something that takes a lot of time in contrast to some of these that can be done uh, more um, episodically, kind of a one off instance, uh, depending on what you're trying to do. So there's really this this um, kind of breadth of, of approaches that I think can be really helpful as a complement to other engagement strategies. So it's like, how do you maybe on the front end create a space for or the, the, the the dialogic deliberative kind of work to, to preface the actionable steps that might be coming through say a collaborative partnership or um, or something of the like okay one thing I just wanted to follow up on you so you were just talking
2: about kind of in a way uh, finding a model that fits the particular purposes for which you're coming together in the first place and I'm wondering you know you just referred to some of the models that might be have particular application in cases where you're kind of bridging deep divides. And I'm wondering if you could say a little more about that and particularly, you know, if we are thinking about long uh, longstanding in- inequities and inequalities in power, and we know, f- you know, from research in all kinds of fields that those tend to show up in all kinds of dialogue, decision-making conversational settings. Are there models that are especially well built for, taking account of those issues and, and trying to kind of ensure equal voice and fair participation. Does that fall to facilitation? How how does that work?
3: Yeah, there are some models that are really good for, um, that kind of sustained discussion intergroup dialogue, which, um, has, has been, um, uh, shaped by a lot of work at the university of of Michigan. Um, uh, and the sustained dialogue Institute, for example, um, comes out of this t- type of tradition. They have tremendous free on their website at Sustained Dialogue um, resources to, to organize these kinds of conversations. They're very simple, but they, they do fall back and all of this work falls on to the role of uh, facilitators, moderators uh, for these, some of these processes. Some are really kind of informal, very simple. Um, others are a little bit more robust and it, you know, I, I I wouldn't say it takes a long time, but it can take some time to develop a certain skill and a comfort level to, to be able to do this kind of work. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes this work interesting is that it's, um, it's another way to think about oneself as a democratic actor that's not in kind of an advocacy or kind of an oppositional role, right? You're not necessarily championing a certain position, but you're championing a process. um, As a colleague um, talks about, uh, Martin Carcassonne at at, uh, Colorado State University, he talks about passionate impartiality, Mm -hmm. right? The deep commitment to a process that creates a space for equity, for inclusion, for the diversity of voices to be heard. That sometimes some are really not popular, um, or some sometimes they're just really marginalized for a whole variety of ways, whether it's because of institutional dynamics or history or or literally a, a language barrier for for people to participate. How do you overcome some of those things? And a lot of that does fall on to the responsibility of facilitators and that and I, I do want to say though that th- that doesn't mean that it has to be some professional coming in from outside. Um, to, to do that. there are, are many instances and, and a number of colleagues and, and some of the, my own students and, and others at Kansas State, uh, students have a great you know, an opportunity in, in many places to learn these some of these skills, right? because these are fundamental um, skills that I think people carry when we think about the kind of lifelong learning like how do you get people to talk with one another? This is a very baseline, Um, way of being in the world with one another, but it's something that we've lost some of that ability to do, right? And and we've known it for quite a while, people living in kind of these these bubbles, you know, these enclaves where they're only interacting with people who are like them, who think like them, who come from those experiences. And so it's really important to be able to bridge some of those realities, whether we're talking about in a college classroom or on a campus or or in 15 years when Mm -hmm. somebody's just living in a neighborhood and they're like, I don't know my neighbors, but we've got this problem. So how are we going to deal with this?
0: Yeah. I think what one of the things you just said um, comes back to, you know, just sort of one of the hot topics of higher ed right now. You talked about, you know, unpopular opinions, marginalized voices. Um, when you look at the, the whole conversation around who gets to speak on campus and what should we allow and how do we balance letting everyone's voice be heard with, how unsafe that might make some students feel. What is there a role for dialogue in that challenge?
3: Yeah, I mean this is um, I would say yes. I, th- I think this is one of the, the the big issues right now that we're confronting is this tension between the kind of free speech movement as it's largely been shaped these days um, in contrast to say uh, the the discourse around safe spaces, right? How do we um, how do we make sense of these? How do we reconcile them? And I think at the heart of it is um, I think of a colleague um, who has who works at a, a foundation called the Interactivity Foundation, and they create discussion materials for what they call exploratory discussion. And they were working on one a few years ago, and they basically had this internal challenge. They're like, we want to we we recognize climate change is an important issue. How do we frame that in a way that it brings people to the table? Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, as we know, this is an issue, especially in in, in the U.S., that it continues to get wrestled with politically. Um, they made the decision to to create those discussion materials on the assumption that this is happening. So, what do we do? So, there are that could have been done differently. It could have been open up as a as a what what is happening? Do, is anything happening? Those kinds of things. So we have to make kind of judgments, or what, where do we put those parameters around discussion? And I think the, the reason I mention that is because for this discussion around kind of the free speech issue right now is you know fundamentally what do we uh, what do we value at the heart of kind of democratic life? Right. There's there's a principle of of open articulation of views, even if they're unpopular. Um, and we can, in a legalistic way, we you know this is when we can k- kind of start to say like what's permissible and what's not. But I think probably a more appropriate question really comes down to this idea of of how do we think about ourselves as either institutions or communities, if you want to use that language, and 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 where are the, the where are the parameters that um, either include or exclude the the language that dehumanizes people uh, or includes them as, as, as equals. And I think those are some of those kind of boundaries that make this uh, a complicated issue, but also I think give a little, little bit of guidance that if I'm, if I'm saying you don't, um, you shouldn't exist, for example, or you shouldn't be here. Um, whatever that, whatever those categories might be that I would attach to you. Like those would be some of the places where, um, you're probably not going to have a great discussion. So this is where the whole free speech conversation does not necessarily align uh, really well with some of the dialogue and deliberation work because you have to be open to the possibility of actually listening to one another and and engaging Uh in conversation. There, there does have to be um, uh, whether it's tacit or not, there has to be some uh, acknowledgement of people being able to participate. Even if your views are in opposition to mine uh, if you have kind of different perspectives, but it, it, it's this is this is where kind of the deliberative and dialogic work is different from say protest politics. Um, yeah. This is not just a get people in a room and have them shout at each other. There has to be a presumption of of um, some expectations, some guidelines. And a lot of people who do this work have very clear, like these are the principles for discussion that we're gonna abide by, right? We're gonna respect one another. We're gonna anticipate that there are gonna be conflicting viewpoints, but that's okay, right? There can be that that kind of constructive conversation. But if people are just um, gonna say that you don't belong here as, a, as an individual or as a group, then that is, I think one of those places where that discussion is something really quite different from, from maybe how we would think about kind of the deliberative work. That does set up a situation, though, of like, when, when you know, so when, right? Yeah. And this is the hard part. Um, there are lots of examples. Uh, the National Issues Forums Institute, which is one of the, the kind of pillars in this work, um, they will very intentionally take a while to work on dis- new discussion materials uh, because if a topic is, quote, too hot, they'll kind of let it um, simmer down a little bit before they try to, to bring people to, together. There's a reason they just published in uh, this last year a discussion guide on called safety and justice, you know, right. what should we do about community violence? But it was largely shaped by actions that have been happening a few years prior, even before. And so there has to be some attention to um, what, what's the climate, what's the culture. And are, if, if people are really not willing to talk with one another, then that's, that's one thing. But if you have that kind of first step that, that, that folks will say, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with you, but I will acknowledge you and uh, your perspective to the degree that we can actually have a conversation or engage in something. Uh, that's that's something quite different. So that's yeah, okay. That's kind of a squishy answer, yeah. but
0: I mean, it's not a silver bullet, and I think that's important.
3: Too. No, I, but I, but I think it does it, it. This speaks to one of the great challenges, especially for college campuses, is how do we, especially for public institutions, right? Um, how, we are, we are the kind of venues for. For for public open discussion and how do we uh, how do we wrestle with the, the tensions between saying, you know, the, the t- time, place, and manner those kinds of questions with this larger sense of what are the what are the implications if we just um, kind of open up uh, an environment that can be uh, deeply detrimental not just to individuals or communities or the institution but kind of society as a whole.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, the lawyers say hard cases make bad law, and it's almost like it, it sounds like part of what you're saying, and I'd be interested to hear what this sounds right to you, is that, you know, these extreme cases where a white supremacist shows up on a campus uh, and kind of heightens the tension on purpose all at once. Maybe isn't the moment that we should be focused on. The moment is how do we build a culture in which nobody there's no market for that.
3: Right. That that person, you know, who shows up to, to say those things is not looking for a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Right. This is these are recruitment tools. They're, you know, they're, they're provocative actions, kind of statements, those types of things. And so if if it's a um, I guess I want to say if it's disingenuous to a kind of a democratic process, then don't try to onlay what is an explicitly democratic process that and I have been in them as a participant, as a facilitator, really contentious discussions. Right. These deliberative forums that people are wrestling with the, the tensions and trade-offs of like, well, if we do this, uh, well, this is, these are some of the possibilities of what might happen. Like wrestling with those kinds of things is totally appropriate and great. Those are the places where, you know, friction is really good. Um, that's how you, you know, how you make a fire when, you, when you're out camping. I was a Boy Scout, right? And so there are moments when you want that spark to kind of uh, get the kindling going. But there are times if, if you're literally just trying to burn the place down not to take this analogy too far, right? But, or <laughs> where are we going here? Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, but there are there are, there's the appropriateness to figuring out how do we use this in a kind of constructive way, or at least creating space where people can engage one another. But if we're not going to abide by some common guidelines that say I'm going to respect you to the to the degree that you're going to you know respect me, all these types of things. Um, then, then we're really not looking. You're not looking to have a deliberative dialogue. You're, you're, you know, you're making a statement. You're kind of doing these things that are are more provocative than than uh, than uh, in being inclusive or engaging.
0: Well, I think that's important in terms of having the right expectations or just looking for the conditions where it's even possible. Right,
3: and and and, and sometimes like it's not appropriate. Like there's there there are yeah. times when and, and especially right now in in our. A current a political climate in the United States, like a lot of discussion that I've had, and I know colleagues in the in the field of deliberative uh, deliberative dialogue, is that you know what's the place of this alongside kind of protest politics, right? So there's been kind of a re engagement in recent years of what does it mean to be a citizen? How am I how am I interacting? Um, uh, and and that's I think that's an appropriate conversation. Where's the where's the right space for for this kind of discussion-based work to fit in with a larger kind of suite of approaches to a whole host of problems. And I'm, you know, I'm a champion of people talking with one another and some, but sometimes that's not, that's not always the path to pursue depending on what the, what the, the situation, the climate, the context is.
0: So what about in the, in the broader community? Have you seen good examples of higher education having the ability to play that role as a, as a convener, as a facilitator of dialogue toward community decision-making or whatever the case may be, is, there a, is higher ed the appropriate player in that? Have you seen good examples? What does that look
3: like? Yeah, I think, I think higher ed is a great um, institution to house this work. I mean, increasingly, there are uh, centers and institutes. Um, the Kettering Foundation, for example, uh, convenes uh, and, tr- and and prepares people in some of this kind of work, and most of them, not all, but a lot of them, come from colleges and universities. Uh, these are, you know, as we know, colleges and universities are hubs um, for a lot of life in communities, whether big or small. Uh, they're anchor institutions; they're not going anywhere. They have a uh, this public purpose, whether they're public or private, right? In in the variety of ways that we we think about that, and so this, to me, is is one of the the uh, approaches that I think have uh, some really significant deep roots um, that in, in some ways we're kind of reclaiming them, not necessarily knowing always all of that history. But um, universities and, and colleges have, I think, the the possibility and the capacity to do some of this work. So, for example, thinking of a number of colleagues who who run centers or the like, and will train students in some of these processes. And they'll, they'll use them um, for local school board meetings. Uh, they'll have internal kind of college camp uh, conversations on their campuses, but also do it uh, um, in a lot of really very explicit kind of public ways, working with local government. um,
0: And the students are acting as facilitators? And
3: the students are the the facilitators. They're the ones putting the whole thing together. Um, There there are some really robust examples. Colorado State, James uh, Madison, um, uh, places around the country um, have done work in a whole host of areas. So working on on environmental issues, working on city planning kind of issues, transportation. Um, that there's uh, there's a, ch- a chapter in the Deliverative Pedagogy book that's all about local transportation, right, of, of, and students engaging in that process. I mean, so here are um, really tangible, impactful issues that are, are at play, and they're being— um, uh, being facilitated by by students. Right. And and I think I alluded to this a little bit ago, but I think one of the big opportunities is wedding some of these kind of democratic practices with other kind of approaches. And so um, how do you maybe leverage these types of of deliberative discussions with um, either stakeholder groups or planning committees or whatever it might be? And those are those are often opportunities for this kind of uh, informed thoughtful discussion to have implications down the line and and we have really uh, exciting examples of that happening um not just in a classroom kind of pedagogical way of like oh isn't this a great way to learn this content but in really impactful kind of public ways that are, are changing university to community partnerships um nick longo at providence uh, college for example has has really drawn on this work in in their um and their engagement work, and it's, and it's been striking to hear these examples.
2: One interesting thing about that that example of students playing the role of facilitators is, I think it provides one answer to the question, what's the connection between this deliberative work with students and, and service, as we normally think of it, right? That is yeah. a service role in one's community to be that facilitator. I'm wondering, w- what else are points of connection you see between service learning, other kinds of traditional community engagement activities, and deliberative pedagogy, deliberative practice?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think um, the opportunity to, uh, like I was just kind of mentioning, uh, infuse some of these practices with what might otherwise feel a little bit more kind of typical or expected is is great. So uh, I'll speak from some of the own, my own work uh, with students in, in the last few years. We've organized some um, some community-based projects that have been rooted in this this idea of deliberative dialogue, right? So, the Kansas, the state of Kansas, had a change in state law regarding concealed handguns, and it was um, something that was becoming apparent. Uh, it was a very big issue. Uh, that would, but it, it was playing out not all, just on campuses, but in, in communities elsewhere, uh, beyond. And and so these. What, what could have been framed as just uh, a, a project that was um, happening in kind of a traditional way. We, we infused it with this kind of deliberative work. So in, instead of just saying doing a survey or kind of getting a sense of like where people are on some of these issues, kind of the yes or no, right, the public opinion poll, um, we were organizing discussions. So we had them all across the state. So we had them happening in schools, K through 12 schools and community centers and um, on our own campus in our in our broader community in, in Manhattan, Kansas. And it was uh, it was it was striking because these were discussions that were led by students who were signed up for a class that they didn't know necessarily this was going to be happening in this course. Right. It was it's a a small group communication class that people take because it meets the requirements and it it happens at the right time. And it's, you know, I don't like to get up early and neither do they, so it works out all those kinds of things. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're showing up the first day and they're looking at the syllabus and it says this deliberative form, like, what is, what is this? You're right. Um, so that's, that's one of those ways that, um, you know, I've, I've intentionally kind of structured it. That's a, a more kind of formalized way. There's another project that I do that I've, I've totally, um stolen's not the right word uh but um have emulated a colleague of mine elizabeth gish at uh, western kentucky university she does something called the kentucky kitchen table and we very creatively do the kansas kitchen table um
0: wow we really didn't we, try to hide and steal no no
3: no no we, we talked about it we're, we're working on the <laughs> same stuff. initials also yeah it, it was yeah <laughs> it does it, i hadn't thought about that until after i i established my wordpress site but uh um, but it's, and it's something that students are actually going to be working on, uh, largely, I think some over, over Thanksgiving break, but it's an opportunity for them to have conversation about what does it mean to be a citizen? Right. And so it's a very informal kind of s- structured process. Basically have a potluck with some people, you know, some people that you don't, uh, it has to be like in a home or it can't be in a dorm room or like a, a, a restaurant, but it has to be kind of in that setting. And you know, the, there's one stipulations like you 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 can't just talk about being a citizen as like paying taxes, these kinds of things, but you have to talk about some of these other ideas and conceptions. So the reason I mention it is because that is a really informal, like, you know, last last year when students did this, I paired people up in our community. People were going up with their whatever they were taking for the potluck, knocking on a door of somebody they didn't know. And they were sitting and then having these kind of conversations over food. And so hopefully that kind of broke some of the ice. But that was a, a very informal kind of way. There were some parameters, but very loose in contrast to um, these more kind of highly structured deliberative processes. And all of that runs across this kind of gamut. And I think these are all opportunities for uh, for students to embed what otherwise might um, be just regular classroom assignments or even kind of service learning opportunities uh, that um, that create a different kind of space. You know, I think fundamentally people need to be able to talk with one another. Right. And so how do you do that at a very human level? Uh, and for some folks, there was one group of students last year who they, they went over and it was, um, it was the night of a soccer game. Uh, and so they were all eating and then they realized that. So they took like this break and then they watched the game for a while and they came back and, and all told, they were the, these students who had never met these people, like these six or so people that they went to to go have this potluck dinner with. Uh, they stayed for like six hours, and it just kind of kept it just kind of kept going. And they wrote about this, and um, and then they have to write this on this public blog. So these are all kind of these public narratives that they're creating about this experience, and and I think there's something really important about that as we live in a, in a in an age when you don't have to really talk to a lot of people you can communicate in a whole variety of ways uh through various media and how do you have that kind of fundamental human interaction uh with people who are not your blood relatives or really close friends right that's mm-hmm. those are those are the places that as you know in, in a recent book called the vanishing neighbor we have we have real good connections at that really close, intimate level, and we also have on this really out, far outer ring the connections to the single issue concerns that we might have. You know, think of the email list that you get, right? The move-ons, the League of Conservation Voters, the whatever they might be. There's a middle ring where it's the people that you live around, your neighbors, the people who are in, in, a, in a community that we don't know as well, right? So how do we foster some of those kinds of interactions? I think these are some of those ways. Sometimes it's that potluck conversation, um that can be wedded with a a, a community development plan or a project, and then that's where it extends, or it's it's you know the assignment that I was just describing. or it's um, something a little bit more formalized, but it it's leading to, you know, sometimes talk is really, you know, just talk, uh, but it leads us to something, sometimes a little bit more explicitly and sometimes uh, it takes it takes a while for it to kind of mature and to get to a, a place where, it feels like uh, we can move to some action. But I think having that kind of spectrum that and at least that understanding from someone like uh, a professor or an administrator to have that um, that comfort. And this is one of the challenges, especially in the academy. Right. It's hard to say, like, yeah, we've spent the last three years kind of kind of talking about stuff. Right. How do you put that on your promotion and tenure document? How do you <laughs> how do you justify these things? And this is where I think we have to have the internal conversations in our in our institutions, to, to you know, this this aligns with a lot of public co- uh, public scholarship kind of conversation, conversations. Is that um, how do we make sense of some of this work that does not always? Sometimes it can, but does not always reflect um, the degree of time, the energy, and then sometimes it you know it doesn't come to fruition the way that you would right. you would hope. Yeah,
0: it's uncontrolled. Okay, so I'm convinced,
3: All right. but well, I
0: don't have a PhD in communication. No, that's I don't either. I am not <laughs> a I'm not a really confident facilitator. Okay. Let's say I don't I haven't been to training for this. Um, so Sorry. can I even do this? Where do I Where do I start? Do I have to pay someone thousands of dollars to train me as a facilitator? Well, you can
3: send it directly. No. Um. <laughs> Um, no. The short answer is no. Um, the longer answer is uh, you know uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> the, the short answer is there there are a lot of resources that are available. The the um, I think one of the beautiful things about this field is that people very rarely are um, competitive or are kind of closed in in uh, sharing resources. So. Whenever I I just did a um, uh, a weekend training with some graduate students and faculty at our at our institution, and um, the materials that I was handing out I think came from about four different places of colleagues from Michigan State and Colorado State and you know all all over the country uh, who have have produced resources for for people to think about this kind of work, um, and so people are very um, myself included. Uh, If you spend a lot of time studying and researching and being committed to democratic practices, it's really kind of hard to be like, and I'm not going to share this thing with you, right? Um, So there's a great openness, really, I think, a a robust collegiality, if you want to think of it that way. So there are a lot of materials that are available um, uh, online through websites like NCDD, the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation. That's a great kind of repository for a lot of materials. And there, there are some others that I've mentioned before that you can find resources like very short how-tos on the Sustained Dialogue Institute's website. You can download um, 80 pages worth of discussion guides from racism to ableism to ageism mm-hmm. to, uh, to racism, I mean, you across the board. Um, but there is, you know, for some, some of these processes, uh, there is a little bit more work that needs to go into it to feel confident and comfortable that you can do it none of these are i think so um strenuous or robust that you as a as an interested person you don't have to have a terminal degree you don't even have to be at a university a lot of this work just happens through through people saying we need we need to talk about whatever the issue is right and then they they come across some of these kinds of materials um but you know like anything you know uh further education learning training can be of great benefit so there are networks of of uh of, of these different models that you know uh, afford the opportunity to, to 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 do some training right i i had been involved in this work for a few years before i ever was quote officially trained right and then i mm-hmm. went off and um i traveled to michigan state actually and they were having a, a uh, a weekend training for their cooperative extension agents in this approach system-wide. And I got to tag on. So I have this massive binder that I came home with that weekend and, and I, you know, quote, was officially trained. Nobody's like checking your kind of your materials to see if you've got kind of like the stamp or so. But what I took away from that is our, uh, is, is a huge, binder, for one, but also filled with resources.
0: Binders that, full of dialogue. Binders <laughs> full
3: of dialogue. Yeah, those are the best kind of binders. Full of things. Um, uh, we've got the greatest binders. Uh, but um, but it's a resource that I continue to use, right? I've stood at copy machines for the last number of years using these these materials that have been shared there and in some of these other spaces. That That's what I was alluding to a few moments ago, that... There's a generosity um, from people who do this work that I think fundamentally they're interested in seeing democracy work as it should, mm-hmm. right? Uh, rather than saying this is my this is my material and you need to come to my thing to to get it. That, that's not uh, that's not been my experience, and I think that um, that speaks to the commitment that these folks have. My you know myself included. If there's um, ever something that I put together. Uh, people ask for it. I just, you know, it's 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 out there, and I think that's 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 something really important. You know, it feeds into the the the, the journal of public deliberation, for example, which is the journal, the academic journal, peer-reviewed for this field, interdisciplinary, is very intentionally uh, open access. I'm one of the editors of it, and uh, you know, I'm very committed to to that kind of approach. I mean, for the same reasons that many others um, in other fields uh, have a commitment to open access. For us. Um, it's, you know, I think fundamental, right? How do we have, um, a venue for serious scholarship to, to be available, accessible to people around the world? Um, also having practice stories and other materials that, 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 people I think can benefit from who are trying to make some sense of this, but it, it, it all falls into that same kind of approach of how do we, how do we cultivate the kind of democratic life that we want to have? Um, and this is this is one of the ways that, especially for an academic institution, right, here's that continued lifelong learning. That's where this plugs in. is how do we how do we create space for people to learn and then provide the resources that actually enable them to do that.
2: How did you originally get interested in, in this work in particular? <laughs>
3: um, so uh, there are a couple ways I could probably tell this story. Um, so, My, I have four degrees, my bachelor's and my first master's were in theology. Um, Then I'd studied public administration. Then I went off and and studied education and planning and resource management. So I'm all over the board and now I'm in a communication studies department. Um, But underneath all of it, uh, at various points or when my, my, my parents would, you know, ask me what in the world I was doing. As long as I was, you know, I always had grad assistantship, so they were content with that. But um, the thread that wove through all of that was, and this is, you know, I don't think this is my you know, reinterpretation of my experience through this. But fundamentally, whether we're asking these really big questions or we're moving down to really practical c- concerns, how do we live well with one another, right, is a, for me a fundamental driving question um, that continues to shape how I think about myself, how I think about my work. Um, and so, so a lot of that came up through, you know, I, I, I grew up Catholic. My, my background is kind of in the Catholic social justice tradition and these things. So I was a, a student leader as an undergraduate at our community kitchen. I went on service trips, right. Uh, I went on a a border immersion trip about immigration and these types of things. And then I worked in a campus ministry setting. Um, and uh, it was through that, that I met a student who happened? And this was in Dayton, Ohio, when I was doing my master's. Um, I had returned to to the University of Dayton to do a second master's, and I happened to go out to lunch with a, a friend who used to lead these kind of urban plunges we called them, basically introducing um, affluent kids to kind of the urban realities of of, uh, of, of an old industrial city, Dayton, Ohio. And we were out to lunch, and we were just catching up. And I said, oh, you know, what's going on? And she's like, oh, I'm working at this interesting place called the Kettering Foundation. She's like, you ever heard of it? I was like, no, what is that? Mm -hmm. And she started describing it to me. She's like, well, you know, it's this place where people are really interested in democracy and and bringing people together. And at that time, I was working um, at at the Fitz Center uh, for Leadership and Community at the University of Dayton. Uh, directing a couple projects, uh, one that's just flourished called the Rivers Institute. But um, so I was thinking about university community partnerships really through that lens. That's where I was existing. And I wasn't really familiar with this deliberative dialogue work. But through this this chance conversation, I um, got connected with the Kettering Foundation, which is a research foundation that that you know, focuses on a lot of this kind of work. The National Issues Forums Institute is born out of Kettering. And I landed, uh, I can say this now, um, I kind of kept it under the wrap so I could keep my assistantship at the same time, but I split my time between the University of Dayton and my assistantship. And then the other half of my time was at the Kettering Foundation, basically serving as a research assistant. And I just got immersed in this world and work that was um, foreign, but familiar, right? It was language and uh, frameworks that I didn't know, but it just made a lot of sense, like how do you how do you build community? Well, you bring people together to talk about stuff, right? These kinds of things. And so long story short, well, I guess it's still pretty long. But um, <laughs> is um, is that, that that led to meeting a lot of the people that I now look up to as as um, figures uh, and, and really instrumental um, individuals in my own thinking. You know, so I started meeting folks like Peter Levine and Harry Boyt and, and Scott Peters, who I happened to be getting a cup of coffee one day. And one of the program officers pulled me into a room and Scott, who became my dissertation advisor, he was like, oh, what are you interested in? And I started describing. He's like, well, that sounds very interesting. I'm looking for a graduate assistant for a new project I'm about to start. And it lined up perfectly. So I just, in a very natural way, um, very fortunately, uh, had the chance to go work uh, with Scott Peters at Cornell, and it was it was through these kinds of connections. So that was really what developed it and solidified, I think, the the embeddedness of this work in the university setting. So I spent then the next number of years um, looking at how the land-grant system and particularly the cooperative extension system use deliberative work in community-based um, problems across the country and speaking about the challenges as well as the promise of this work. And so it just for me it reinforced I think a lot of the ideas that I had that didn't have the language to capture it. So when I you know when I trace back to my older experience of kind of the you know why do we do the things that we do for me drawing on these traditions I went to a Franciscan school so Saint Francis, right? How do we care for one another? How do we uh, have this kind of compassionate approach to the world? It traced all the way to today to these uh, to these ideas of um, how do we live well with one another, and I think fundamentally and especially right now in the climate that we are in globally, but uh, here in the United States in particular, we are divided. We're deeply divided. We're polarized in ways that we haven't seen either in a really long time or ever. Um, the lingering effects of an election cycle that in any previous um, cycle would have kind of dissipated by now, but we're just, we're just really um, intensely um, divided. And I think that's where the, whether we're talking about deliberative pedagogy or, or just more of this kind of democratic work is so essential. It's, 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 um, it's key to us, not just solving problems or addressing concerns, but I mean, frankly, at a very basic, like how do we, we got to live with one another? How do we do that? This is one of those ways.
0: Well, Tim Schaefer, it was good to dialogue with you.
3: <laughs> I'm so I, I saw what you
0: did. <laughs> um, seriously, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Oh, I appreciate uh, everybody it. Everybody should check out your book.
3: Yeah, it's uh, Deliberative Pedagogy. It's with Michigan State University Press and their Transformations in Higher Ed series. It's um, it, We were really fortunate to uh, a number of colleagues. We were working on these projects, and we had this moment of realization. We're like, well, we can all just write a bunch of journal articles (laughs) or we could try to have this be a coherent narrative that was largely filling a gap that it was um, it was apparent to us, the people in the the deliberative dialogue world did not necessarily have the uh, kind of adequate conversation with the civic engagement people. So we saw this as one of those chances to bridge it. So really excited to have it out there and uh, hopefully to spur more conversations how people can infuse some of these practices into their teaching and, and learning, but also into their community engagement.
0: Well, yeah, and despite the title, I do think it's really accessible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I think so,
3: too. It is, I, <laughs> in I,
0: I, terms of having a lot, good, a lot of good concrete I, examples. I will, say, <laughs> I will
3: say we've got folks from all sorts of dis- different disciplines and very intentionally people from uh, the contributors from every type of institution. So historically black institutions, uh, uh, community colleges, all the way up through public regionals, r- research intensive, and then liberal arts colleges, it, and then also internationally. Um, so it, it, we were very uh, in, intentional um, about having that range of voices come into play because we recognize that just as we were kind of uh, working through how, to, how does this actually happen on, ca- happen on campuses, the institutional type matters in some circumstances, and what's capa- what's what are the capabilities of both individuals, but also the the institutions themselves. So, um, hopefully, it could be of use to, to folks. And it is uh, a lot of shorter kind of case studies. Largely follows a, a, a pretty um, typical framework. So, it was envisioned that somebody could read through the whole thing, but if they just flip through and saw, oh yeah, that's. That's the thing that looks interesting. They could pick it up that way too. So
0: sounds good. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you. Bye. Okay, welcome back everybody from our interview with Tim Schaefer. JR, I guess since you uh, weren't in on the interview, I'm interested first and foremost on some of your impressions. What stood out to you?
1: Sure, I really enjoyed it. I love Tim's work. Now, I have to say I do think to go extremely deep with deliberative dialogue, that it probably is good to be a trained facilitator because I think that this can get... A little tricky. However, I do agree with him that this can be led by any voices, whether that's a student, uh, if that's a community member um, in tandem working with higher education. But I really want to give a nod back to last season. And if you have not listened to last season, I'm encouraging you to do that now. But we interviewed one of our Newman Civic Fellows, Yaz Najibi. And Yaz talked about community organizing from a student's perspective. And it's much about knowing and understanding your audience and the messaging that goes around that so i think much of it is around communications and understanding how we build our messages around this work to create deliberative dialogue and yaz had mentioned you know the pipeline going through the area where yaz was doing organizing and the conversation with folks who lived in rural areas was more about property rights, and that was the way to bring them into this conversation to have deliberative dialogue. So I think it goes back in many ways to building a communication strategy, which anyone can do, right? It takes um, just a little effort and time to think about that without being fully trained as a facilitator. The one piece that stuck out to me and to Andrew's question to Tim about the connection to service learning, it also made me think about our conversation with Tania Mitchell last season, or yeah, last season, where Tania, uh, we discussed critical service learning. And much of the work of deliberative dialogue is connected to critical service learning in that way, where critical service learning often looks through a social justice lens. And, you know, deliberative dialogue could and possibly should, but, you know, it doesn't Always, but I think that connection to critical service learning is important, and I don't think the two can really be separated out. And those were the two takeaways. I I came from his interview really thinking about the impact of that around our work.
0: Yeah, I I think your first point is interesting, and I appreciate that he kind of said uh, both and with whether you need significant training. I think there's a lot you can do without significant training. But what you said is important, it has to be planned out. You can't wing it and expect dialogue to go well, I don't think. You have to really be thinking about, and I think that's why I like thinking about these streams of dialogue and that kind of thing, because that means you're thinking from the front end about what your goal is. What do you want this dialogue to result in? Is it new relationships? Is it a decision? Is it something else? Um, those are that you would plan it in a different way depending on that outcome and I think that's really important but sometimes missed you know you just kind of know well people should be talking so let's have a dialogue but making sure the goal is clear to everyone isn't always there and one of the reasons I think that's important I was just talking to some other folks on our campuses about this this week also is just um, seeing some dialogue fatigue in places where there have been efforts to have dialogue. And part of that is because there's maybe not a clear understanding of the goal amongst everyone. So some of the fatigue is because people feel like they've talked about things and nothing's happened Mm -hmm. when the goal might not have been for something to happen. Right. Mm. Um, It might not have been for a decision to get made and enacted. It might have been to learn more about the issue or build relationships or something like that. But if you're not clear about that, then I think people are bound to get frustrated with the process of dialogue.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot there that I, uh, I want to respond to. We've got a bunch of threads. Um, (laughs) You know, I think one thing that just popped into my head, just in, in the context of the point that Emily just made about being clear about what you're seeking to do. I think, you know, part of that is being clear about, what level of agreement is necessary in light of what you're seeking to do. So I, I've been influenced by, I can't remember whether I've talked about this on some previous episode, but a guy named Ed Morrison who has a center at Purdue University uh, in, of course, the great state of Indiana, uh, yeah. that is focused on what Ed calls strategic doing. Yeah, And it's a really cool model for communities to work together where There's a component of coming together and talking, achieving some level of agreement about a general direction that you want to go. But then people taking individual or sort of small group responsibility for taking actions that they think will contribute to the overall goal. So, for example, if you're thinking about community economic development, you may have some general goals for wanting a neighborhood in a city to be revitalized and to have some commercial activity and to create job opportunities for residents. But instead of one big strategic plan that you have to get everybody to agree on that takes years to hammer out and that maybe then you just never find funding for and the whole thing goes down the tubes, you basically say, okay, I'm gonna just claim an action. Like, I'm gonna start you know, a pop-up coffee cart or whatever and somebody else says, well, I'm gonna start a historic walking tour in the neighborhood that will introduce people to it, show them why it's an interesting place, and we'll walk them by the coffee cart, you know, uh, and maybe it can generate a little business. And people start to just do things. Then you come back together and talk about how it's going and what else might you do. But it doesn't require consensus or unanimity. There are other processes, of course, where you're making binding decisions and you really need people to come together in a way that everybody can live with it or that you decide you're going to just, you know, make a majority rules kind of decision. But, yeah, I think very often we don't achieve that kind of clarity. And again, I think for students, in the context of service learning, other forms of experiential civic learning, starting to think in deeper ways about how communities can make decisions, who needs to be involved in what sorts of decisions, when it's okay to allow people to just go forward and do the things they wanna do, and when are the times when really groups need to collectively decide things. Those are incredibly important skills and they can be part of connecting experiential learning to deliberative processes and kind of digging into those. So I just think, you know, the the work that Tim and his colleagues in the book have done and that, you know, again, many other organizations we've got as one of our knowledge hubs for the civic action planning work, um a hub about dialogue and people can look at some of the other organizations that are focused on this work and learn about the models and the tools that they have available. But I just think it's a very fertile Field one last point about this. At our national conference in Indianapolis this spring in March, have you noticed that Indiana is running like a crimson thread through this conversation? I just <laughs> like uh, our of conference, conference, yeah, exactly. Take over the world, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so one one of our goals at this conference is really to help people understand this landscape of dialogue deliberation. What are the different models? Why would you use one over another? How can you dig more deeply into them? Uh, There'll be a set of opportunities for people to kind of see some of the things in action. So there's a lot of reasons to come to the Campus Compact National Conference, but that's one more.
0: Yeah. Yes, that's a a good reason to come. And I know there will be some good – sorry, I was thinking about six different things, and it's not translating to the words forming – from my mouth <laughs> so, we're patient um, <laughs> so I think that'll be good I there's so much about this that I just think is fascinating and one one of the other things is what you were just talking about around who needs to be a part of the dialogue which I hear just a lot of conflicting different information about and I think that's because who needs to be a part of it depends on what your goal is but I hear so often you know, there's no point in having dialogue unless you have leaders who can make decisions in the room while at the same time that's a group of people where you will experience that fatigue you know those are the people being asked to do everything to be in every conversation um and then if that's the case where's the role for your quote-unquote average citizen in the dialogue process if that's who all dialogues are focused on so I I think trying to weigh those things is really important and again making sure that you're being intentional about it so that who you're inviting and and trying to get to attend and participate aligns with your goals. Okay, so we made the, I think, brilliant decision that instead of talking about pop culture or resources, we're going to talk about maybe just culture culture and in that we're going to talk about... uh, thanksgiving turkey day i think this episode is coming out on the day before Thanksgiving. yes so super relevant so hopefully you're listening to the podcast as you drive to your in-laws house with uh potatoes you're trying to keep warm in the back seat
1: and listening to us talk about deliberative dialogue
0: (laughs) 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 so uh guys what's your Favorite Thanksgiving food?
2: So, the first thing I want to say is, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Uh, I love Thanksgiving. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is uh, just that I have had many glorious Thanksgiving with family and friends, and it's just been a great holiday in my life. But I also do enjoy food a great deal. And uh, it, you know, plays a central role in that holiday. And I'm not doing the thing that I most like to do food wise on Thanksgiving this year because we're having it not at our place, but at some wonderful cousins. But uh, I like to smoke a turkey. Uh, that is what I uh, – so, you know, you put it – I just do it on a Weber grill, uh, very, very low heat. Uh, you kind of create a bath out of whatever you want, like beer, and or you can use like some bourbon or whatever, and then some apple wood uh, and it, it create, and you brine the turkey first, uh, and it creates it. it, So, so many people, I think, think that turkey is not a great food and that's just because they've never like cooked it properly is my view. And, uh, so I highly, yeah,
0: I guess that's going to be my view, (laughs) but I am now, I am now picturing your turkey, like, chilling in a bourbon
2: with a cigar. (laughs) See what I mean? See what I mean? That's what we're talking about. Yeah. It's a smoking turkey right there.
1: Uh, I have to say when you said you like to smoke, my mind went somewhere else. I pictured you with like Ah. a cigar and then I heard turkey and my mind went completely somewhere else.
2: Yeah. One thing I really don't like is smoking anything that is involved like that kind of smoking. I would that would ruin my holiday. No, I only want to smoke things on a grill.
1: Agreed. I am the same. I cannot cannot deal with cigar smoke or any type of smoke. Uh, for me, Thanksgiving is also a special time. It's a tradition in my family, and I'll say that I don't like the history around Thanksgiving dating all the way back, but I do like the tradition of gathering with family and friends. My parents have hosted Thanksgiving since they have been married, and they host about 50 people who travel in from all over the country to come back to Indiana for this event. So for me, it is a time of celebration with friends and family who often don't come back for other holidays, and so Thanksgiving is kind of the big holiday in our family. I'm a fan of dressing. Scene. And I'm not talking about stovetop stuffing. I don't want that imitation crap that you add water and boil and do all that. I like the homemade stuffing that and for my vegan and vegetarian friends that you might want to plug your ears, but is actually made with like turkey innards and sage and and breadcrumbs and then uh, oh. baked. I knew you were gonna say <laughs> So you know what I'm talking about. The green, it comes out and it looks green, I kinda like stuffing, but kinda different. I actually enjoy that. It's my favorite Thanksgiving dish. And I have to talk my mom into each year making this because she absolutely hates to make it. And I'm like, please, it's the only time of year I ever get it. So I'm the only one who I think does eat it. I get sent home with the stuff, the uh, dressing leftovers. So I'll say that's one thing I'm looking forward to is digging into that dressing on Thanksgiving Day.
2: I feel like we don't often get to hear uh, kind of Jr. in his peak Hoosier
1: mode, <laughs> and I feel like
2: that yeah. we just we just got peak Hoosier right. That, now. Yeah,
1: that,
0: that, that was that was Indiana it, all over the innards. Place. <laughs> <Inners>. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, put me in the camp of also loving Thanksgiving. I, it's just such a low-pressure, eat food kind of holiday, and I dig that very much. Um, and we have some new traditions in our family because Mickey and I, my husband, and I started last year hosting his family at our house, and we don't make a turkey because I maybe I just need to try, you know, give taking the turkey to a spa, but... I think turkey is boring. So we're making roast and gumbo and then lots of sub-traditional sides because I love green bean casserole and potatoes and lots of things like that and pie, of course. Um, and we, play, we will be playing the Gobble Games, which is our own invented set of games with a winner and a loser who then wears a turkey hat. Mm. Uh, yeah, It's very. it's intense.
1: That sounds like fun. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then we'll head over to Eastern Iowa for the rest of our family. And one of the cool things is, are you guys? Do you guys know the band called The
1: Band? Oh, uh, like are they from the seventies? Yes, I do. Wait,
2: I can't even tell whether you guys are kidding. Like there are people who <laughs> no! don't know the band. I realize that I'm kind of like you know the older generation here, but I'm I'm shocked to learn this.
0: You would be shocked if people didn't know.
2: Yeah, that's the like band? have you ever? George Washington you know what I mean well,
0: I don't know if I'd put it in that same Maybe. category of, <laughs> I know plenty of people who don't know have never heard of the band but anyway if you've heard of the band you might have seen The Last Waltz they're a documentary yes. about them
1: I, I have seen. not oh well something. you definitely go, go out <laughs> Should, and get yeah. it it's a documentary a
0: from, uh, about them but also about part of it is a, a live show they did on Thanksgiving um, I think 40 years ago Last year it was 40 years, maybe. Uh, Yeah, it's got to be about that. With like everyone who was anyone from that era um, as a part of that show. And starting last year, uh, um, a bar in Iowa City does a a rendition of The Last Waltz with some really talented musicians there. And they're doing it again this year. So that's a part of our Thanksgiving tradition. Oh,
2: that's cool. Like they recreate the concert in the bar? Oh, that's fun. That's great.
0: And the, the, there's some really talented people and they, um, try to dress like the people, you know, like Neil Diamond and, um, Neil Young and, uh, Joni Mitchell and, um, you know, all the people that are in it and it's pretty, it's pretty good.
1: So So who are you going as?
0: Well, no, you don't participate.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> I pictured like people showing up as their favorite like 70s yeah. musician, right? That would I be I like awesome.
2: the idea of Emily going
1: as Joni Mitchell. Yeah,
2: that's that. what I thought. mean, well, yeah, that would be,
0: yeah, be the closest for me. I mean, I I don't... would
2: definitely be Neil Diamond. I just want that to be clear.
1: Yes. Okay. I right. I don't know who I would be. Um Ooh. maybe maybe like Paul McCartney when he was in like Wings or something. I don't know. No. <laughs> no, that's now,
2: what are you talking you have about? to choose from the, the cast of characters. you have to watch the film first yeah watch yeah. the okay last all, right,
1: all right all right then
0: and then tell us then
1: all tell right us who, i'm, who I'm writing be. that down right now
0: okay all right well it's been good to talk to you guys and um hopefully someone interesting and entertaining for others so yeah. uh, <laughs> as always do us a thanksgiving favor and subscribe on itunes we always need more of that to get this in front of more people. Um, tweet about it, Facebook about it, if you're, if you're listening. And we do run across people a fair amount of the time, at least I do. And I know you guys have told me stories, too, who tell us they're listening. So, you know, tell some other people you're listening because we always want to get more, um, more followers, more listeners. Uh, and we're always open to your ideas about who we should be talking to and what we should be talking about. So you can email us at podcast.compact.org. Or find us on social media, just do hashtag CompactNationPod. So have a great holiday, everybody.
1: Season 2 of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe, all rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org, or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.